I love the Smiths. Sorry? I said I love the Smiths. You've, you've good taste in music. You like the Smiths? Yeah. To die by your side is such a heavenly way to die. I love them. Holy. This is a story of boy meets girl. They made a statue of us. The boy, Tom Hansen, grew up believing that he'd never truly be happy until the day he met the one. The girl, Summer Finn, did not share this belief. You should know up front, this is not a love story. I think we should stop seeing each other. Just like that? Just like that. Start from the beginning and tell us what happened. I tried to talk to her in the copy room. She's totally not having maybe it. Maybe she was just in a hurry. And maybe she's an uppity better than everyone super skank. In college, they called me perfectly adequate handsome. They used to call me anal girl. I was very neat and organized. So you have a boyfriend? No. Who needs it? We're young. Might as well have fun while we can. And... Wait, wait. What happens if you fall in love? You don't believe that, do you? What? It's love, it's not Santa Claus. I think it's official. I'm in love with Summer. I love how she makes me feel. Did you ever even have a boyfriend? Of course. What happened? Why, why didn't they work out? What always happens? Life. get over her. I don't want to get over her. I want to get her back. We've been like Sid and Nancy for months now. We have some disagreements, but I hardly think I'm Sid Vicious. No, I'm Sid. Oh, so I'm Nancy. Yeah, I, I think there are, are two films people can watch, uh, Glorious Bastards or 500 Days of Summer. It's a very which way Western man kind of hypothetical. You know, my my big inflection point was trying to get to the theater to see, I think, Star Wars Revenge of the Sith, and it was sold out, so we had to watch Batman Begins instead. And that set me on a life of vigilantism and hatred of the poor. It really set you back, I think, probably years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's just so many more complex themes in Revenge of the Sith. I think a lot of people underestimate it. They think it's just, you know, a CGI-filled blockbuster. But really, it's about democracy. It's really it's about really, the Trump administration. It's really about cool space battle and space <laughs> battle being cool. This is also true. RJ, it is nice to have you back in the studio with me. And by studio, I mean our respective bedrooms separated by thousands of miles. It's um, good. It's a, it's a respectful distance. It's a respectful distance. The restraining order won't let us get any closer. <laughs> Today, I did want to bring you back to do something completely different, completely unique to our podcast that we have not done before, and that is talk about a piece of media we both enjoyed. Naomi and I have done two movie reviews so far. We did uh, Marry Me with Owen Wilson and Jennifer Lopez and then Silver Linings Playbook, both of which are films I had a lot of fun ragging on and very little positive to say. And I think it's easy to critique media. I think it's very easy to point out the flaws of media. And don't get me wrong, those movies had plenty to complain about. But it's far harder to like find media that you think is 
good and worthy of adoration and can put up on a pedestal. And I think 500 Days of Summer is a movie that like reaches that impossible standard of romantic comedies, romantic dramas that there's actually good lessons and messages in. There's like good chemistry and good writing and like solid themes. And it's one that like I would strongly recommend to people and want to dig into like why it is such a powerful movie and what other films about romance and love can learn from it. Yeah, and it's one of the few pieces of media we tend to agree on. We tend to agree upon. What are the the media? What are the pieces of media we enjoy? I think we both like Southland Tales. It's for different pretty reasons. much Southland Tales, Cosmopolis, um, and Five Hundred Days of Summer. That might be it. Yeah, I mean, I think we both like Donnie Darko. I don't know if where you still are on it. Uh, as long as the director, as long as it's not the director's <laughs> cut. Oh, but I the appreciate... director's cut has Killing Moon at the beginning. I forget his name. I know he did Southland Tales also, but I enjoy him in concept. But I think <laughs> editors really kind of saved his career. I, I think he's a director that works best when he gets to play in a space and can do whatever he wants. Limitation is a bad thing for him. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I think 500 Days of Summer is one of those movies we watched like three or four times in our freshman and sophomore year. I I feel that every time I walked into the lounge, you were watching it on repeat or just be like, guys, it's an evening. Let's hang out and watch this movie over and over and over again. Um, I didn't bring much to the table. I think I was just like Magnolia guys. It's a pretentious film. You'll love it. (laughs) Well, it's, it's a movie that I connected with a lot as a, a under I don't know how to put this a unappreciated teen with (laughs) niche interests who couldn't seem to get the manic pixie dream girl of his of his uh desire and I think the more I've watched it and the more I've grown I've appreciated more because it made me feel like someone who watched fight club and was like man fighting is awesome (laughs) that Uh, is the message of fight club I definitely should have paid attention a little bit more to what the sister was saying in the, uh, I think the most important quote of the entire movie, just because you have a bunch of shit in common doesn't make her your soulmate. Yeah, I think we'll return to that because that's an important theme in the movie. Yeah, I mean, I I watched a couple of times with you. I think you introduced me to it. I'd heard people in high school talking about it, but like hadn't seen it myself. It seemed like a pretty generic romantic comedy. And I think if you watch the trailer or read the description online, the impression you're going to get is it's a very cookie cutter, like boy meets girl and they fall in love um, with hints of drama. And it's definitely more nuanced than that. And I feel one of the problems is, and this is true of a lot of romantic comedies, a lot of people don't have any sort of media literacy. They don't have the ability to like critically assess what they're seeing. And so for a lot of people, and this is my opinion, I I would love to see some survey data on this that the studios I'm sure have recorded in some secret vault somewhere. But I feel for a lot of people, their idea of a romantic movie is pretty people doing things that resemble love. And they don't really think about what the actions are or what the general plot beats are or whether or not the things the pretty people are doing are actually like objectionable or not. It's just like, well, they're two pretty people. They got to be in love because that's what love is. Pretty people spending time together. And, and I think a lot of the movies that were considered really enjoyable romantic comedies back in the day have aged very poorly because the actions of the main characters no longer hold up when you like dig deep and ask why is this 
why it is that they're doing certain things and whether or not the other person in the relationship should put up with that. Um, so yeah, 500 days of summer really, really impressed me across the board. Um, and I'm not really sure how to structure this, but I want to just kind of jump in and discuss some of the major points of the movie. I think it's maybe not worth rehashing the entire plot. I would rather this be something where people are listening and be like, oh, that movie sounds good and, you know, sit down and watch it for themselves. Um, do you have any comments, any, anything else to say before we jump into that? I think, yeah, going off of your point, the thing that it did the best, in my opinion, was it had objectionable actions but with consequences <laughs> mm. um, where it wasn't like the obvious uh, maybe hallmark person doesn't appreciate the other person because they're stuck in their career kind of thing. Um, right. But it, it was a much more, I think, realistic, but also more powerful where one person completely ignored the other person's boundaries and essentially goaded them into a relationship that they've been against the entire time. <laughs> And then was like, why isn't this relationship good? And I think, you know, maybe me at 14 or however old I was when I got kicked out of trying to see Inglorious Bastards and got stuck <laughs> watching 500 Days of Summer, uh, wasn't mature enough to kind of get that. So it, approaching it maybe multiple times or maybe with more media literacy really got the points better across and honestly made me kind of challenge the way I was thinking about relationships. Mm. You know, I'm thinking Inglorious Bastards is very much a film where both the surface level messaging and the deep dive messaging nearly match up. Surface <laughs> level, it's like killing Nazis is awesome. And then like critical messaging is killing Nazis is awesome. <laughs> it, was the, it was a simple point. Well put. <laughs> well articulated. Yeah. So for people who have not seen the movie, 500 Days of Summer um, is a 2009 American romantic comedy drama written by Mark Webb. Uh, Mark Webb is a writer who also wrote the Amazing Spider-Man reboot with Andrew Garfield in 2012 um, really? and its 2014 sequel. Uh, he really hasn't done anything else. <laughs> this is very much lightning in the bottle. You look through his filmography, you're like, oh, um, yeah, there's there's not a lot going on. I want to say he did the TV series Limitless based off of the movie Limitless. But again, beyond that, you look through his filmography, there's very little anyone's going to recognize. Lightning in a bottle. Um, so this was a screenplay written by Scott Newstater and Michael H. Weber and produced by Mark Waters. The film stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Zoe Deschanel and employs a nonlinear narrative structure with a story based upon its male protagonist and his memories of a failed relationship. Uh, the main character's name is Tom. Uh, he is pursuing the object of his affections named Summer. And the film unfolds in kind of this non-linear progression where it starts at the end of their relationship and kind of works backwards exploring little scenes that explain why it is that their relationship did or didn't work out. Um, and it's interesting because the opening scene of the movie is one of the last days of that 500 day period. And it's them dressed up very handsomely sitting on a park bench, holding hands in the middle of a park. So the opening of the film is like, this, this doesn't work out. But the shot that the film opens with is the impression that it's a happy ending. And I find that really fascinating because it definitely subverts the audience's expectations and immediately raises a lot of questions about what the film's going to contain. I, I like it when films do that instead of you walking into a theater and being like, well, it's a romantic comedy. They're going to end up together, right? Like that, that's how this structure works. Okay, so the first thing I really liked about this film, RJ, is maybe it's just my sense of humor, but I find it 
very funny. I, I think there's a lot of movies that attempt to be amusing, that attempt to have banter between their leads, that uh, attempt to insert jokes because the studio exec said, hey, the pacing of the scene is off. You need to insert a joke here. And this movie does a really good job with humor. Uh, the characters are charming. And I think that's partially due to the actors having like genuine chemistry whether it's Joseph Gordon-Levitt or Zoe Deschanel, you know, having a conversation or him hanging out with his friends or him like talking with his sister. I think there's a lot of believability there and it definitely doesn't feel like any of the jokes were forced. It definitely feels both sporadic, but also insightful. There's a lot of things throughout the film that I'm like, oh, I find that enjoyable. And even on this rewatch, there was a number of little things that I didn't catch before. Tom's character makes a lot of asides that uh, initially are humorous, but then you dig back into and are like, oh no, that's actually kind of misogynistic. <laughs> and uh, maybe we shouldn't trust this character's impressions far too closely. Uh, I, I think that's a really effective technique from a writing perspective because the joke is supposed to be that he says something off-putting and it's like, oh, he's quirky and awkward. But then if you actually think about it for a couple of seconds, you're like, oh, maybe this is his character. One example is at the beginning of their relationship, he hasn't worked up the nerve to talk to Summer's character about going out on a date. And his friends keep berating him. They're like, why don't you just like ask her? And he's like, well, that's exactly what she'd want me to do. I can't do that. Um, but th then there's an aside where he's like, she's been ignoring all of the, um, the, the little uh, advances I've been making for her. You know, she, she's resilient. She won't succumb to my charm. Like, what did you actually do? And it's a scene where, where Zoe Deschanel's character comes up and says, hey, do you need anything from the copy room? Because they work in the same office. And he looks at her and says, you know exactly what I need. And there's this long, drawn out pause where she says, okay. And he goes, toner toner can you grab some toner for me and then she walks off and on the first look it's like oh this dude is like super awkward and that's kind of cute and charming and to an extent that's his character but then watching this for the third or fourth time i'm like oh that's sexual harassment in the office it's not <laughs> something that should be tolerated um and, and so not only do i think it's well written i think it's well written in the sense that the humor serves the role of the movie because the movie is partially about getting the audience to understand that the character they idolize isn't necessarily as perfect as they want. And it, it kind of throws them off the scent and, and creates this sense of intrigue when you start to unpack all of the problems in the relationship. Um, because again, on first glance, it's very obvious, oh, he's just this awkward dude. But then upon further reflection, upon digging into more, you get this completely different impression. Were there any yeah. jokes that stood out for you that you thought were like particularly well delivered? Yeah, I, I think maybe not well delivered, but uh, the, or the acting was great. It's definitely well delivered. Uh, maybe that's not the word I'm looking for, but looking at it, even just from yours, how you described it uh, now, I'm thinking about it in a different way. And I've probably seen this movie a dozen times. All of his most awkward moments are about his opinions on women or his interactions with women. And so maybe that's not awkward. That's just does it know how to interact with 50% of the population exclusively because he sees them only as prospective uh, romantic partners. I think some of the lines that like kind of evolved how I've seen them, like at first we're just like, Oh, like a little bit cringy. Oh, like, yeah, like that's funny. Like that's how I would think about it too, too. Oh, oh no. <laughs> the, when you look at it holistically and all of those statements together, it points an incredibly awful picture. Things where like the why do pretty people think they can take whatever they want or treat us like shit 
when really the treat us like shit is hasn't accepted my not so obvious flirting yet um and uh, another one where i think it was before the karaoke scene but after the smith scene in the elevator there's another scene in the elevator where she is like excited uh he's like hi and he's and how was your weekend and she was like it was good and Mm. he's like can you believe that shit she's been getting passed around the dudes at the gym or whatever so what happened you ready yeah so there we are nine more floors to write just me and her hey summer hi How's your weekend? It was good. Can you believe that shit? I'm sorry, what shit? I think I missed something. She said it was good, emphasis on the good. She basically said she spent the weekend having sex with some guy she met at the gym. Skank, whatever. I'm over it. What the hell is wrong with you? I think I didn't pay enough attention to his friends kind of calling him out for how... (laughs) awful that was or like yeah the only thing only time that she could be experiencing happiness outside of you person who has shares one thing in common with them and has not had any other successful conversations is they must be cheating on you despite you guys not being in a relationship nor ever talking and i think the friends do a good job pointing out that that is um and all like a very weird way to think about it um and not logical but i don't think it goes far enough to say hey you have a long pattern of misogynistic statements referring to uh other people existing outside of your control yeah i i think people listening to this for the first time knowing nothing about the film might get the impression that the main character is a huge misogynist and the film doesn't do a good job of like critically analyzing that and i argue it's the opposite the main character is not enough of a misogynist that you'd pick up on it immediately, but enough that you'd like, after watching a time or two, be like, that's a little strange. That's not how I would have written this if I was trying to write a charming person. And then you start to think, well, is this meant to be a charming individual? Is this meant to be someone who who cares about Summer and you know respects her and wants her to be happy? Um, and, and so I, I think there's a layered aspect of that. And I think part of the reason the audience accepts a lot of that behavior is because of the opening of the film. Because before that initial scene I talk about of them sitting on the, on the hill, there is a title card that pops up. And I think I wrote this down. It, the, the first thing that comes up is, is a couple of sentences. It says, uh, this is, you know, a, 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 this is a, based upon a true story. However, any relation to people alive or dead is coincidence, especially you, Ginny Buckman, bitch. <laughs> and, and so from the get-go, like the joke is, oh, like this is based off of someone's experiences and he still has like some lingering resentment. Ha ha ha. But looking back, you're then like, wait, if this entire movie is the author trying to tell a story and the opening of the movie is the author being a huge misogynist, perhaps the perspective of the person in the story is not one that we need to respect and one that we should critically dig into. And I found it really fascinating that that's the framing of the film. Like that's the first thing the audience interacts with, that the movie's tone is heavily influenced by the author's past and that misogyny may permeate different aspects of it. Yeah, and I think maybe not even taking it as this is going to be tale, <laughs> tales from the view of misogynist, but it is at least like this is going to be a very unreliable narrator. And I think Tom is kind of the narrator. It's told from mostly his perspective. Um, and the narrator kind of reads his mind a little bit. So I think some of that mm-hmm. 
unreliable narrator that's pointed out in the beginning, I think goes both ways. Or while the narrator kind of reads Tom's thoughts, I think that is the narrator also sharing Tom's thoughts of this is a story about how angry he is at this one woman, (laughs) which is ironic given this and is supposed to be like he worked on himself and he met this new person, but he still has all of this aggression towards this one person. Yeah, there were two other jokes that I I thought reinforce what you're talking about with them hiding a subtle misogyny. Uh, At the beginning of the film, there's a couple of scenes with them arguing near the end of their relationship. And Summer says, all we do is argue. And Tom immediately fires back. That's bullshit. (laughs) Um, which which is funny you're like oh that's that's not a that's not a healthy reaction that's not something that like people in a happy contented relationship would do but again looking back it's immediate jump to anger it's immediate you know confrontation it's not like casually you know confronting the issue and attempting to you know reconcile it's very much like a a, an aggressive tone that he jumps to Uh, the other joke that I thought kind of solidifies what you're talking about is when he's super depressed and this is near the end of the film chronologically and near the end of their relationship. But uh, Summer has just broken up with him. His work is suffering. He works at a greeting card office and he's not turning in high quality greeting cards. And so his boss is like, is there anything bad going on at home? You know, did you and Summer break up? Anything bad like that? He's like, no, 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 everything's fine. And the boss goes, well, maybe you can explain this. Roses are red, violets are blue. Fuck you, whore. (laughs) And again, it's a joke that the audience is going to laugh at because it's like, oh, clearly Tom isn't doing well. You know, this is the work he's producing. You're not supposed to do that. That's absurd. That's crazy. But again, this is the work that he, a greedy card professional, is turning in and expecting is going to be like treated as valid. And it's interesting that I think a lot of people don't pick up on that immediately, perhaps because again, they're they're assuming, oh, well, this isn't supposed to be how people should actually interact. But then reassessing it later, they may come to terms with the fact that (laughs) Tom has some issues deep down. I I do want to jump sort of to a conversation about Tom's actions throughout the movie. And I kind of want to run this idea past you. Do you think that Tom has respect for women's choices? (laughs) That's a very broad question, but I'm rewatching the movie and it seems multiple aspects reinforce the idea that Tom thinks of Summer as something to be pursued and something that should conform to his interests. There's the scene in the bar where they're talking and he's complaining about how women these days don't know how to dress. And he's like, you know, so they're they're covering themselves in tattoos and these absurd purses. And Summer goes, well, some people like that. I like that. And he's like, mm. but but he's expressing, you know, how he thinks women should act and how they should conform to his interests. And the opening of the movie the narrator explains that Tom's understanding of relationships is influenced by a misinterpretation of the ending of The Graduate. And the ending of The Graduate is a man steals another woman's wife from a church. He's like, do you want to run away with me? And he, you know, cuts short the wedding ceremony and they flee in a bus. And the ending shot of the film is them sitting on this bus as the bus drives away from the church and they're all excited and they're, they're happy, but the shot just lingers on them. And over time, they, their, their, their expressions kind of fade to melancholy and they're like, oh no, maybe that wasn't the best decision. They don't look like they have it all figured out. They look nervous. They look scared of what the future holds. And I think a misinterpretation of The Graduate would be, oh, that's love. Love is great. Love is grand. While a more accurate, more honest interpretation would be maybe don't make these rash decisions that are going to put you in situations where your entire life is upturned. I don't know, but 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 Tom seems to have this this fantasy idea of women as a whole. 
Yeah, I think one of my only complaints about this movie or criticisms of it, where I'm like more more of a criticism of the movie than of Tom, are was that scene at the bar where I get what they were going for. They were trying to show like this dramatic escalation of like the possessiveness. The he considers this a relationship um, for like the fight scene and like this the really powerful scene that happens after that the i say we're a couple god damn it the complaints about women like like felt off even for him like the the complaints of, like about how women dress like it, there wasn't really like a breadcrumb trail of any other part of the movie that where he expressed similar like very heavy-handed opinions about women as a whole uh, i thought the movie was really good at Tom having these questionable opinions because this is an object of his fantasy of this is the validation of him being this quirky person finally getting rewarded for being quirky and interesting with a Mm -hmm. hot person who likes the same things. Um, And I thought that scene was just like, it was kind of in there for like, hey, are you getting that he's a bad person? Like, we don't trust our our own writing up until this point. There were a couple of other things that I picked up on in this viewing that I hadn't picked up on prior ones. Um, They're arguing at the beginning of the film about how their relationship, you know, has kind of been on the rocks. And Summer makes a reference. She's like, we're like Sid Vicious and Nancy. And he's like, well, I'm nothing like Sid Vicious. She's like, no, 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 I'm Sid. You're Nancy. And he gets all offended. He's like, I'm Nancy. And so there's this, it's this little thing. Maybe he just doesn't like the analogy, but it's interesting that he feels weird about being the woman character in this scenario and her having kind of the masculine role. The other thing that I thought was interesting was there's a scene where Summer's talking to him about her past partners and he's completely off base about what she actually finds attractive because he's imagining in his head what these people actually are. And then Summer explains, no, they're completely different than what you think. So like one example, I think she says, oh, and that was the summer that I was dating that punk rocker, Charlie. And he immediately jumps. There's an image in his head that appears on screen of this punk rocker guy at a concert. And she's like, she was great. And he's like, wait, what? And it turns out it was actually the groupie in the background of the image that he just pictured. I think that was the bassist or guitarist, not a groupie. Uh, oh, okay. But, but to my point, like he's completely off base with what she wants. He's easily offended by comparisons to being a woman. And I wonder if that fits with his character. Cause there's that scene in the park where they're admiring all the fancy buildings from the top of the hill. Um, and he's going on and on about how great these buildings are and how well they fit the skyline. It seems he's very concerned with the aesthetics of things, not their actual utility. Because Summer points out that there's a parking garage in the middle of this scene. He's like, oh, I guess there is. Like, he's never even noticed the fact that there's this thing people use every single day for work. He's more concerned with, like, the institutions and these powerful images rather than, like, the actual things that help people on a day-to-day. I think he actually said that it would look better without it. I think he knows it's there. Oh, okay, okay. Um, but yeah, I think there is a that uh, a strong theme of only caring about the surface level where starting from the graduate, he's like, oh, they got together. Nice. Uh, <laughs> pretty people doing pretty things. Yeah, they, the end goal is achieve woman. <laughs> like you don't have, there's nothing happened that, after that. And then you see the his immediate pursuing of well the immediate interest based on her attractiveness and then the immediate obsession based on this person likes a thing that i like which i don't know i live in la a lot of people know the smiths (laughs) but i get it that maybe he doesn't talk to a whole lot of people and then 
goes into only the appearance of being in a good relationship where they're going to these quirky things, um, doing things that he likes, assuming that there's like, if she likes the Smith, she likes all of the stuff that mm-hmm. uh, he likes. And I've kind of morphed my point here, but he doesn't seem to appreciate more than the surface level of, or of his understanding of things. And I wish they uh, did a little bit more in his like self-improvement scene to show that he fixed that <laughs> because I, I just looked what rewatched it several times and like it all it felt was that that montage made him better at being mm-hmm. an architect and not a person so I might have kind of gone on a ramble here and lost the train but L- let me pick up for you because there's something summer says at the end of the film as they're talking on the park bench. And she says, you know, I met my husband because she gets married to someone else and goes, I met my husband at a coffee shop and it was complete luck. You know, if I'd been 10 minutes later or 10 minutes earlier, he wouldn't have been there. If I'd been reading a different book, he wouldn't have chatted with me about it. And all the time I was, you know, chatting with him, I just kept thinking Tom was right. Tom was right about love. And the only thing you were wrong about was me. And you were saying that you thought that that misogyny scene in the bar was out of character. And I thought that was a weird thing too. That didn't feel like an actual learning moment for Tom. Cause it's not your worldview was incorrect. It's your worldview was correct. You were just slightly off base, which is not a good message. And I'm not sure if the end of the movie supports either that Tom has changed or is saying that he's just going to go through the same cycle over and over again. I mean, even the naming of the person that he was pursuing at the end was Autumn, which, you know, very similar to Summer. It's another potential cycle. I'm still scratching my head over that part. Yes. The the comparison to Donnie Darko that we made earlier. Oh, no. There's just like that scene, the bar scene. Just put that like tinge of does the director know what he's doing? <laughs> does the like does the screenwriter director like in like intend to be like Tom is a bad way to think about things, or is it like if you were just slightly hotter and had a better job, it would have worked out? Oh no! Uh, but no, I think based on you know interviews with the cast afterwards and a lot of my reading of film analysis afterwards um, because I I guess maybe to talk about my uh, journey my my over a decade journey with this uh, movie I originally watched it and probably more identified with Tom of yeah I'm quirky and I deserve to be loved for that and kind of saw like pursuing a relationship as the end goal and like once you're in the relationship like everything's great like you found the person what could possibly be difficult after that Right, um, and then I think saw oh you know both of them were at fault like they didn't really work it out and then kind of got to originally like no Tom is just straight up the bad guy <laughs> you know, like, there, it, there wasn't very many shades of gray all of the uh, miscommunications or maybe not even miscommunications but like Summer agreeing to be in a relationship was because she just saw her partner to be capable of violence and then was demonstrating that anger in front of her again. And then clearly the relationship kind of takes a dive after that. Mm -hmm. Um, Seeing that 
kind of the, the, the idea of a person and falling in love with the idea of a person and what that represents as part of your journey and not as this is a person with autonomy and their own goals and interests and desires that is at pretty actively communicating those I'm just and just ignoring them I think is probably should be the main takeaway of this movie of is summer the entire time was like I want this to be casual I don't want a relationship and Tom saw it as haha silly woman <laughs> I will <laughs> convince them otherwise <laughs> I, I guess I've seen some criticism of the film, which says that Summer is an underwritten character. And I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Because on one hand, I see that it fits the role of the movie by treating her as sort of a manic pixie dream girl, an object for Tom to pursue. And the audience can also sort of be funneled down this narrative road where they're like, oh, like she's quirky and cute and he's quirky and weird. and They're going to end up together. On the other hand, though, I feel it strips a lot of autonomy from her and makes it a more difficult to sort of understand her perspective and her opinions. And I think perhaps the movie could have benefited from having a longer scene near the end where he's reflecting upon past indicators of their relationship that sort of deeper dived into her perception of what was going on in each of those scenes and how she took away things from that scene rather than just his perspective. So do you feel she's underwritten? Do you think there's a way they could have improved upon that? No, so I think taking it from the lens, kind of based on our discussion of how the movie starts, where clearly the narrator and Tom are the same person or join very thematically, something like that. I think she does a really good job at, how do I put this, explaining or framing Tom's actions. Um, because I think it was really good to keep her fairly quiet or not maybe quiet, but like we only get a few tidbits of information uh, about her. And I think it's important that he completely goes against every, like the, all of the few information that we get. Um, I think it's easier maybe for the, for the audience where it's like very clear where she says she doesn't want a relationship. He pursues one. She wants, she wants to be casual. He does not. Uh, where I think it keeps the audience on track and it keeps, makes it very obvious and shows that there is no gray area of like, oh, like maybe something she said could be misinterpreted and this is why Tom is believing that this sort of thing. But I think it does a really good job of showing that no, everything she said has been against what Tom is saying and thinking and has been very well stated and very clear. Um, And it also does, is a good catalyst for seeing like his obsession and his idealization and his projecting all of his feelings about the ideal manic pixie dream woman onto this real person and Mm. how all of it swirls around her and just is completely against the very the few information we get from her yeah i wonder and again this this is something that i think maybe is more obvious on repeat viewings but i wonder if the non-linear nature of the story where it's jumping around in like 50 to 100 day periods around the relationship it serves primarily to distract you from her actions and whether or not she should be trusted because she says things like, Oh, I don't really want to be in a relationship. And then the scene will jump and Oh, they're happily in a relationship together. Right. And it's, you know, 150 days later. And so the impression you get is that she doesn't really know what she wants and that she was wrong. And all she needed to do was be sort of conned into a relationship. And once she was in one, she would be happy. And I think if this movie was told in a non-linear 
uh, sorry, in a linear sequence of events, where it was just this relationship unfolding, that'd be far more obvious. But because they play around with time, I think that's where the ambiguity gets introduced and that's where people get distracted. Yeah, I, I think it, it has more a little bit more, more to do with maybe like the main timeline where it starts out with like the tell me what happened from the sister who I think the mm-hmm. sister is probably like such an important character because it is a literal <laughs> child saying like these very true, very obvious statements. And he goes um, to her for advice. He's yeah. looking to a child for relationship. Insight. So I think it's like the tell me what happened. And he like does all of like the very positive things where he like starts with how they met. And um, I think the doesn't want a relationship jump cut in a relationship is one of the first breadcrumbs of like what like there's something wrong here with between what she's saying and what he's feeling. Um, and then there's the maybe look back on it <laughs> question that he gets from his sister. And then it's like, oh, actually, this was awful. And that doesn't fit with the what I'm talking about now, but I just can't state enough the just because she likes the same bizarro crap you do doesn't make her your soulmate. It's a child saying this very profound tr- but simple truth that he just somehow ha- can't get. And I think that's pretty much all of that. The sister's character is like very obvious, very mature takes uh, that he just kind of rejects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I feel, you know, stepping outside from the movie discussion for a moment, a lot of people do have this impression that they need to find someone whose interests match up almost identically to their own. And I don't think they're well served by things like OkCupid, where the algorithms are like specifically designed to find you people who are as close to your hiking, anime, reading, whatever interests. Because often a lot of the time, what you don't need is someone who's one-to-one with what you're interested in. You need someone who respects what you're interested in. Right. And they sound like the same thing, but they're not. One thing that I found kind of annoying in my relationship with Lauren is we have very similar Twitter follows. So we can never share anything on Twitter (laughs) with each other because we've already seen the posts that the other person has seen. And I think a lot of people don't understand that when you share exactly the same interests as someone else, there's a very real possibility you'll have nothing to discuss. And so it's good, you know, to date outside your wheelhouse. That's not to say you can't set standards and be like, I don't want to date someone who believes X, Y, and Z or does X, Y, and Z. But it is to say that it is, I think, sort of a teen boy's understanding of the world, where if they can just find someone who appreciates Warhammer 40K or, you know, has read these certain teen fiction novels that they'll be happy, when in reality, they just need someone who respects them for who they are. And that's, I think, really the the takeaway here. Yeah, and I think when they do the interviews with Tom and his two friends, they get that point really across where uh, his one friend, who I can't believe I'm blanking on the name, the amount of times I've watched this stupid movie, <laughs> is talks about how they met in class and they clicked and... He talks about how like the his dream woman maybe has like different physical features or maybe shares a little bit more of his interest in sports, um, but is better than the dream woman. She's real. And I think he has like the mm. best take on all of it of like he when he talks about them, he, he talked about the chemistry first, not the best attributes, the best like all of the brag points that maybe Tom would talk about with like, oh, she likes this, like these obscure bands. Oh, she's pretty. Oh, she does all these things. Um, and then the other friend who's been perpetually single, it just talks about his desperation. Like as long as they're cute and single, right? Flexible on the cute. 
um so i think it, that scene does a really good job of like getting to where they are at and kind of put the relative healthiness of their views side by side in a way that makes it very clear yeah um i i really do love that scene with uh, the friend chatting because i think that might be one of the major theses of the movie right it doesn't matter how much you want your dream person if they don't exist ultimately the person who does exist is the ideal in love and dating and uh, that kind of makes me and like so again like i've seen this movie maybe a dozen times and i thought like i've totally got it now but just from this discussion i'm like thinking a lot more of i don't think tom changes or gets it um, because thinking more about the interactions with the friends and i think agreeing with you they have amazing chemistry like as friends like they seem like they've been friends for a really long time and like looking more into they kind of act like this happens every single time (laughs) every time he has a new person that he's fantasizing Mm -hmm. about so they don't take a lot of what he says very seriously like they're excited that it's working out and he's happy in the beginning but like when he's like perpetually ruminating about not having her attention they're like okay like have, you're you're not doing anything like what are you talking about this happens every time so it makes me feel like maybe tom still is in that cycle because maybe i have to go back and watch the montage again, oh no but like <laughs> but i think it that might be very obvious he's just going from summer to autumn and he's just repeating the cycle again where because like that whole montage was about architecture it wasn't about <laughs> him growing as a person but like it makes it's like like maybe growing as in like he's not sad about summer anymore but like i I think i think it is growth but it's metaphorical growth and doesn't touch upon how he's changed emotionally because he before he goes on this rant he's fired well he quits his job at the greeting card company and it's clear that he is an architect who has a, a strong interest in designing buildings, but for whatever reason, works at this greeting card company. And when someone asks him point blank, he doesn't even have a good answer for why he's doing this. I, I think his line is, you know, I thought, why would you build something as, you know, uh, as you never have a building when you can make something build that lasts forever, as- like a greeting card. So, Tom, what is it that you do? I, uh, I write greeting cards. Tom could be a really great architect if he wanted to be. That's unusual. I mean, what made you go from one to the other? I guess I just figured, why make something disposable like a building when you can make something that lasts forever, like a greeting card? Exactly, right? He, he, he brushes it off, but it's clear his interests are in architecture. And before he quits the greeting card firm, he goes on this rant, which I think is, again, one of the theses of the movies, that one of the biggest problems in love and relationships is that we're sold this idealized version of love, this, you know, sort of cookie cutter mold interpretation of love filtered through the lens of, you know, marketing and movies and pop music and, you know, Valentine's Day cards. And so, he quits the job that reinforces his belief that love is this like very artificial thing that you can meet the standard of by doing like very basic cursory actions and begins investing in the skill of building long-term permanent things like architecture. And so I do think that's metaphorically indicating that he's improved in that regard by stopping the thing that he hates and doing something that he actually cares about while learning skills to like actually maintain relationships yeah, I, I could see it from the lens of focusing more on the long term, on doing like the small things, but like the necessary things to maintain a large structure like a building or a relationship. 
for the rant that he has at the end i think he does say something about like why people can't just say how they feel and we're like giving them a way out that part makes me feel like he didn't fully get it because like she did tell him how he felt how she felt the whole time and like he also i guess he also said how he felt it was which was a complete negation of how she felt but i don't know i maybe i'll go watch this again for the (laughs) the 13th time and just look at that lens and maybe maybe we're both putting way too much (laughs) into the uh into the writings of the guy who wrote the andrew garfield spider-man movie but i don't i don't i'm not confident that he learned anything other than he needs to be better that's the only like the only reason he didn't get the woman he wanted is he wasn't hot or successful enough right i'm wondering about a subtle aspect of the film that I read about when I was like browsing, trying to look for critical analysis of this. Um, I don't know if you've read up on this, but the color grading of the film separates summer and Tom visually. So summer almost always wears blue in every scene that she's in. And Tom almost always wears tan or brown. And there's a couple of scenes where they're like, one of them is wearing blue and then has like a coat of brown on top or is wearing brown and has like elements of blue in their clothing on top, indicating that they're like on the same page and sort of coming closer together, which I feel is a very creative wardrobe choice. Mm -hmm. But what does it mean that Tom doesn't work out with a girl who's colored blue? And then the end of the film meets this new girl named Autumn, who has brown skin, brown eyes, brown hair in a brown building, doing the same stuff that he cares about. Because you're talking about that scene where his sister says, just because someone cares about the same stuff you do, doesn't mean you're actually going to fall in love. And here he's going from someone who, at least from color contrast, doesn't match up with him to someone who does perfectly match. Doesn't that just reinforce he's going after the same thing of someone who shares all the interests again, even more so? I mean, maybe what that's trying to get across is that visually they're very different. And I think like throughout the movie, you can tell that summer and Tom are very different based on their beliefs and core values, which until the end of the movie, which I agree was like a weird reversal for summer's (laughs) character, which maybe we're also just like Tom and completely misinterpreting what uh, summer did. Um, But I think maybe it's saying um, Tom was viewing summer as the same person despite uh, obvious differences and in the filmography the the visual context thought they were the same people because of the same interests and now we see summer who or autumn who is i guess via the color context and clues is more maybe compatible with him right so jumping back to summer's character we were talking earlier about how she's underdeveloped And I would argue that she might need a little more screen time, but we do know everything that's important about her. Because in the same opening scene where it's established that Tom's entire view of romance is based upon a misunderstanding of The Graduate, so misunderstanding what relationships are like and the role media can play in your perceptions of it, you have this other scene, which almost seems like a non sequitur, of Summer growing up, her parents are divorcing, And the thing she learns as her parents are in the middle of this like legal battle is both how much she loves her long, beautiful hair and how easily she can cut it off. And I was watching it this time and I was like, oh, that's her perception of love, because I feel it establishes from the get go that somewhere is someone who both can care deeply about things while also being able to sever them without a significant emotional attachment. 
And I wonder if that perhaps explains a lot more of her actions throughout the film. Or even if she did have strong feelings for Tom at a given point, she also didn't have that like intimate connection he had and was far more willing to give up on the relationship when it started to sour. Yeah, I, I always interpreted it as she has an aversion to romance because I think it kind of matches with the conversation of the karaoke bar where she talks about love being a fantasy and it not being a real about how 50% of marriages end in divorce. So I saw it more that way where she could detach from something that she loved because she knew or like she enjoyed the amount of control she had because like when it's another person, she doesn't have that control, um, which is a thing Tom should have learned. (laughs) Perhaps. I think the other thing that reinforces her view uh, is the music choice she has at the bar. And I did want to touch a little bit upon how good the music was in this film. Excellent movie. Excellent soundtrack. Oh, it's all good. We'll we'll play a couple of clips from these songs. Um, There's not a single song that I hate in this movie. And I think one of the big mistakes a lot of romantic comedies do is they try to find the most obvious song that people will recognize. They're like, this is, you know, meant for people who grew up in the 80s. We're going to find some like banging 80s songs about love. And they don't really dig into the deeper meanings of the songs. They're just like, what are the popular songs people will recognize that will set a certain mood? And I feel the music choices in this film are not only like excellent, they're also kind of, maybe they were more underground when the movie came out, while also having the themes that they're trying to convey in each of the scenes. So to that point, there's the karaoke scene in the bar where both Tom and Summer sing songs. And Summer's song is the song Sugar Town by Nancy Sinatra. And the whole song Sugar Town is about how Summer has problems or, or the, the singer has problems, but she doesn't really care about them because she's just going to lie down in the grass and they'll go away. And you can interpret the song, I guess, about like drug use and like coping with your problems through substances. But the general theme that Summer gets across by singing the song is... I'm not really attached to relationships. Even if there are issues, I can always just walk away. Don't, you know, nail me down. I got some troubles, but they won't last. I'm gonna lay right down here in the grass. And pretty soon all my troubles will pass, cause I'm I never had a dog that liked me some I never had a friend or wanted one So I'll just lay back and laugh at the sun Cause I'm a shoo 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 I guess the contrast to that is what Tom sings. And I looked up this one this time. It's Tom's, when he gets super drunk, sings the song, Here Comes Your Man. And the song, Here Comes Your Man, is from the perspective of homeless people waiting on the side of the railroad tracks for death because they're unhappy with monotony of their existence. And I feel that kind of captures his perspective on life where unless he has someone to love, unless he has someone to care about, he's just kind of going through the motions. doesn't really have a significant purpose in life. Outside is a box car waiting Outside the family's still on Outside the fire 
And I think that also goes to why he's successful at work when he's in a relationship with Summer and then why his success falls off later. It's because a lot of his meaning is derived from relationships. And without that, he can't truly be happy. Yeah, so I, I interpreted the here comes your man two ways. And I'm not sure which one I really land on. One is the framing of it in the movie makes it like sound like a much more romantic song than it is where mm-hmm. it's like, here comes your man. Like <laughs> I'm picking you up on a date and not like, I am a train about to hit you. <laughs> um, and maybe the, uh, uh, the other idea I've bounced around is the song that they share in the elevator is a Smith song about how, it would be an honor to die by yourself, like how it would be super romantic to get hit by a bus together. Um, right. So he has this weird thought, like fascination with like <laughs> dying <laughs> or maybe it's like meeting someone being in love is the end and then you can just die happy. But that doesn't super fit with here come your man. I, I, I felt more cinematography. It, it was framing it like a complete misunderstanding of that song, yes. um, which would fit with 100%. his character. But there's a lot, there's like some other subtle ties to other ideas that are played around within this movie. The song Us by Regina Spector uh, opens the film in the first montage. And I love that. I love that. Um, I think one thing that I criticize a lot of romantic comedies for is there's no real sense of time progression and no real sense of character development. And I get, you know, okay, you have two hours, you have two and a half hours. You can't really provide like a lifetime's worth of character development and backstory to these characters. A lot has to be assumed. But the montage is both of them growing up in, I guess, like the 1980s, 1990s. Uh, And the, the song that plays underneath it is this very sort of mournful song about people idolizing things and then those things not living up to the expectations of people, which again fits into the overarching themes of the film where people look at relationships and want those relationships, but don't realize, you know, how easily those things can crumble and not meet sort of like hypothetical ideal. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I think that one's pretty much, that one's one of the more on the nose moments of the movie. <laughs> I will say while looking for a copy of the lyrics for us, I stumbled across the rap genius online uh, breakdown of that song. And there are some very Marxist readings of it that don't fit with that interpretation. So the first song, the first verse is they made a statue of us and put it on a mountaintop. Annotation. Us refers to Stalinist leaders, particularly Russian leaders. <laughs> the statue on a mountaintop is the Stalin monument in Letna Park, which is on top of a hill. Cities were named after Stalin and Lenin, Stalingrad and Leningrad. People worship them, but later denounce them as monsters. Second, ver- second line. Now tourists come to stare at us, blow bubbles with their gum, take, photogra- fo- take photographs of fun. Annotation. Tourists come from far and wide to see the historic cities of the USSR, but Regina seems to think they trivialize their significance instead of really recognizing the immensity of the history of places like Stalingrad. It's, it's just the galaxy brain meme. The, the small brain is this is, a, this is a movie about Tom being right. It's big brain. This is a movie about how you need to like communicate. Galaxy brain. This is about communism. <laughs> I mean, I'd argue to an extent, like you could read Tom as culturally conservative and Summer is more progressive. Tom very much believes in institutions, you know, the importance of monuments and buildings and relationships. Well, Summer is much more aloof and doesn't feel like she has the ties to those. And you can also sort of 
read into that with Tom being attached to Los Angeles, having grown up to it, while Summer is a transplant kind of moving around from place to place. She doesn't have a historical tie. She's new to the area. She's bringing in new ideas and energy. Um, I don't think the movie was written with that in mind, but I'm sure (laughs) someone now will do a critical write-up of it from that perspective. Um, But I guess maybe that also goes to their differences and sort of I don't know, political ideology are part of the reason they don't work out because they differ so significantly in how they perceive like the importance of marriage and relationships and all that. And now I'm thinking again, it was all spelled out in that bar scene that was swiftly ignored by Tom. So yeah, great, great music. So I'm waiting for the uh, expectation versus reality, which was like, granted, like, yeah, Tom has made like a lot of mistakes and said some bad things, but like you still, your heart still wrenches for him in in that scene. And I think the music for it is incredible. Uh, Do you know what that song name is? I forgot to look that one up. Um, I have it on a playlist, but I do not remember what it's called, but I just love the refrain and to buy time while you Google it. Um, (laughs) The refrain of, I'm the hero of this story. I don't need to be saved just over and over and over where I I think Tom sees himself as the hero and he's trying to come to terms with he didn't get what he wanted. And there's something he was so sure was like destined for him. And just like the the collapse of that is just a very powerful scene with like really good music choice. Yeah, if I were to sort of try to explain the movie and the messages within that movie, I think that three minute scene is probably a really good encapsulation of the themes. I I think it's clever, too. Um, The movie kind of plays around with reality at different points. There's a whole extended dance number where he's dancing through the city, pretending he's on solo An animated bird lands on his shoulder. Like it's very clear it's from his perspective and his imagination, which I guess ties into this whole idea. It's from his perspective and maybe doesn't match up perfectly to the reality of the situation but that one's really good too because they contrast you know what he's expecting the evening to be like and then the grim reality of a boring dinner party uh, a traumatizing but boring dinner party <laughs> um yeah I, I you know there's little touches like he expects everyone's you know drinking wine and being all fancy and i think he walks in and there's a bunch of solo cups and everyone's drinking beer which is a fun little touch uh, but yeah the song is called hero it is also by regina specter there's some some interesting lines in it. I don't really know how to dig into it. I didn't give a lot of thought to it, but I, I think it's used properly because it's emphasizing that Tom is completely blindsided because his perception of their relationship was skewed. Um, now, what sets up that scene is Tom gets together with Summer at a wedding that's out of the city they go on a retreat somewhere up i guess in the mountains it's a train ride away and they kind of rebond after they had broken up and from the perspective of both tom and the audience a very easy reading of it is oh summer is now interested in tom again they're going to get back together and she invites him to a dinner party the following week and you're like oh this is where they get back this is where we get back on track for the ending of the movie where they reconcile she recognizes, you know, all of his good personality quirks. He recognizes all of hers. It's going to work out properly. What isn't mentioned in the scene, however, is Summer saying, this is my engagement party. And I feel that's a big thing to leave out. Now, obviously, like, it was her engagement party. Um, there, there's really not much to say about that. Um, I don't know if she needed to reiterate that. But I feel that regardless of how you perceive summer's intentions in that scene whether or not you think she's sort of understanding where tom's coming from it is a weird detail to not include yeah and 
I think it when they talk about it uh, being like, why didn't you tell me or like, why did you dance with me? And she's like, well, because I wanted to um, kind of goes to she just does what she wants to do. And like in a non-judgmental way, like mm-hmm. like not a derogatory statement, just like she didn't want to mention it and she just didn't. Um, I don't know if there's much more I, like I have trouble reading more into that than she's like, oh, I'm going to have like she doesn't see this infatuation and this obsession that he has because like it only exists in his head um so Mm. she thinks she's communicated uh or at least how i interpreted it as like she thinks she's like pretty plainly communicated where she's at and so she might not feel the need to be like hey this is platonic dancing this is a dinner party for a monogamous relationship that i have been and because he's still existing in the world where she is meant for him and it, they will end up together. So that might be a way to listen. And it's, is, it is, you're right. The the easy read of it is that they're going to get back together and there's chemistry. And I think it makes you forget that in the beginning of the movie, it tells you it doesn't work <laughs> out. Um, so like you can like kind of forget like you can see tom's perspective of like forgetting the facts maybe even me saying like she should have mentioned it was an engagement party is itself again kind of like victim blamey like summer deserved it she should have been more clear in her intentions too because i think without the context of knowing that tom wanted to get back together with her and there's a very good chance they will having seen the first scene of the movie you could easily interpret their conversations at the wedding as just people being friendly, right? There's a scene where they're sitting at a table together with a group of children. There's no other adults. It's just them and a bunch of like 10 year olds sitting at a table, which I thought was cute. But they're talking about all of their like minor personality defects about how like they both snore and they both do like stupid stuff. And one could read that as, oh, this is playful banter. Like they're getting over the fact that they had issues with each other. And there's a very real chance that this is going to, you know, make them stronger together once they get back together. But another read is, oh, she has no sexual interest in Tom whatsoever. And this is her just like being explicit with the reason we will not get together again is because you snore all the time. Not like a reflection on your character, just like a thing you do. Sorry, we're too different. I I didn't see it. <laughs> I don't know where you're getting that, that second read. You don't get that second read? <laughs> no. If someone you used to sleep with is like walking through all of the unattractive aspects of you, I don't know. No, I, I saw, I read it more as like a, a postmortem. Like you, you've become more of like your, your former argument of, or reading where, it was like a post-op, like we've moved on from the strong feelings and we can now kind of look at it as friends and holistically, um, which I think is more of Summer's intent because even from right from when the breakup, she's like, I hope we can still be friends. The email, I hope we, <laughs> I hope this means you're ready yeah. to be friends. And then being and then talking as friends and dancing as friends because at every stage since the breakup she has communicated she would like to renew as friends um and he um doesn't communicate that they belong together and that he's still obsessing right and you know i i thought it was clever where the opening scene is 
his sister asking, you know, what happened? Why did you break up? And they flash back to her at a diner. And after they argue for a bit, she's like, I don't think we should be together. He walks out and she goes, don't worry. You're still my best friend. And you immediately read this like, oh, that's such a harsh thing for someone in a relationship to say. But even then, off the cuff, spontaneously, her immediate reaction is to be like, this is my best friend. I love this dude. Please, I want you to know how important you are. <sighs> this movie's well written. It's, a, it's, a, it's like a little puzzle box. You keep pulling out bits and finding new bobs. And then if you look really carefully at minute 28, Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> This is a prequel to Spider-Man. This is true. So, RJ, um, unless you had something else you wanted to comment on, I did kind of want to wrap up with the major themes, the kind of big takeaways from the film. We've already talked about these, but I feel it's worth reiterating sort of as a platonic ideal for other films to potentially emulate in the future. Because it's my perception that a lot of films these days go through the motions where they're kind of like, this is a love story. Here's the beat-by-beat breakdown of their love story. Oh, there's going to be conflict because their families are quirky and don't get along. But there's never really any in-depth exploration of what it means to love and what it means to be in a relationship with people. And I think this film has some very solid insights and takeaways. Um, Even now, as we're talking, you know, it seems that we've revealed a couple of more. Yeah, I think what it does best is framing some very common cultural attitudes that men like Tom have, which, you know, might be like the teen version, like the teen view of relationships, or uh, I mean, some adults still have it, but they do it in a way that they can frame it really well to make it like really obvious why those views are incorrect or at worst problematic. (laughs) Yeah, I think it does kind of a breakdown of the romantic comedy trope of someone wanting someone else so much that they should fall in love with them. Like the woman should be grateful that a man is going to such extreme lengths to get her back. And that's like a line even in the movie's like, I'm going to get her back. And, and the movie reinforces that this is a really bad take on relationships because, you know, Tom is like, you know, I think we, you don't get a say in it. I say we're in a relationship. Two people don't have to agree on this. Um, when in reality, no, like that's the whole point of a relationship is two people agreeing. <laughs> yeah. So I, I feel that's a really good thing. It seems obvious, but not enough movies make it clear that women have autonomy. Um, and, and that, people who obsessively pursue you perhaps should not be treated as romantic, but instead creepy. The other couple of themes that I thought this movie does really well at articulating is the idea that some people aren't right for each other. And a lot of people need to understand that not every relationship is going to be perfect and work out. Um, The thing we've already talked about, that there's much more to relationship to just having things in common with one another. Um, And the idea that partners aren't magically going to give your life meaning. And those aren't things that I think romantic comedies really ever discuss because a big theme in romantic comedies is people being right for each other, right? People fitting together like puzzle pieces, people teaching someone that what they really needed was love. That's kind of a staple of Hallmark films. That was a big thing in Silver Linings Playbook. And one of my criticisms of Silver Linings Playbook is it's about two people who have mental health issues getting together despite the fact they have no chemistry, nothing in common, and have done very little but scream at each other the entire time. When I feel a better takeaway would have been them realizing that they're not in love with each other, but instead can be supportive for each other, working through their mental health issues and their own individual problems with relationships. Yeah. I think one thing it also 
you know, I, I see the purpose of having those, like, these are, you know, hot people that get together because it's true love. Like sometimes you just want the cheap serotonin, like not every movie <laughs> has to be this deep. Um, but I think we do need more movies like this where it like challenges cultural attitudes. And I think one of the most important things that challenges is like falling in love with a person versus the idea of a person and what that person would do for your life. Right. You know, we're putting together an episode on like pornography and trying to discuss it from a sex ed perspective. And we're not like coming down hard either perspective, either saying, you know, pornography is 100% good or 100% bad. Um, we're also not trying to do you know, this, you know, centrist position in the middle because, you know, there's many shades to it. But one of the big things that I think you can criticize pornography for, and I've seen this quote butchered in a couple of different ways, but the essence is pornography is never self-critical. Art in many ways is self-critical, where you have art that questions other art, the attitudes, the assumptions, the, you know, viewers, the, the, the characters within it. Um, and porn never is like, maybe porn is bad. Maybe having like hateful choking sex is a bad thing. It's always like instant gratification. It's whatever is going to, you know, get people a quick orgasm. And I, I guess my issue with a lot of romantic comedies, it's essentially that it's romance pornography. And I don't think that's more dangerous than like, I don't know, abusive porn that normalizes, you know, hateful attitudes and treatment of women, but it is damaging in a different way. Cause I think it sets people up for failures in relationships and makes them worse partners. And I think there's definitely a place for these where you can like enjoy them in your secret cave and be like, I hate this, but I also enjoy what it provides. <laughs> but I think we need to understand that that's what it was in the same way that I think some people can, you know, compartmentalize porn and be like, I don't like what this is portraying, but also like, I'm okay with making exceptions to my orgasm. I think we can have people who are like, I'm not a big fan of these romantic comedies and the messages they produce, but I find them enjoyable. And that's really the attitude that needs to be cultivated. Yeah, it was very, very mature, nuanced take, Joel, as, a, as I've Thank come you. to expect from your excellent podcast. Okay, so this is going off book, RJ. I'm sorry. I'm taking this RV. We're going off in the middle of the forest. Uh, I've got the wheel. You can't do anything. <laughs> if you were to write a romantic comedy film that explored some aspect of relationships, is there a major theme that you feel is worth touching upon that isn't discussed enough? Hmm. I think maybe, f I think it would be a, a, a spiritual successor to Tom's montage, but it would be, it would focus a little bit more on the post breakup, uh, like autopsy of the relationship where mm -hmm. you can like see the, the shades of gray of, even if it was a, like one partner was objectively worse than the other show, you know, they're both like, there was th like things that you did wrong, that they did wrong. These are the things that I would want to look for. These are the things that I need to improve and kind of, de-tie this idea i need to be more successful more attractive um more well-read more just more to be worthy of a relationship that's healthy and respectful which i think one of the main flaws of this movie was that the montage kind of was like oh he gets to meet a person because he has a, a not silly job his uh, hair he has, is slicked he back big so he's job. treating things seriously yeah I, I so it, and I know I, at least in my life I have a few friends who have had that idea of you know you're out of a relationship you delete Facebook you hit the gym <laughs> uh, it's like that might not be the thing 
that you need to take away from that relationship. Well, like both of those are good things to do for your health in general, but like that might not be the, like the issue wasn't your bicep size or that you spent too much time looking at memes. It might've been a fundamental miscompatibility. So I think it would be like, maybe like a, a, maybe like framed like those discussions Tom had with his friends, but like as a, a autopsy of a relationship and like challenging some cultural attitudes of like the relationship would have worked out if you tried harder, which I think can be unhealthy. Mm -hmm. To answer my own question, (laughs) (laughs) um, you're talking about this, and I think an interesting film would sort of portray elements of communication within a relationship, because I think a lot of people utterly hate the idea of like probing the essence of what their partner cares about and believes, and even having less like either simple or difficult conversations with them. You know, just the question, do you want to have kids? you know, what's our financial situation going to look like? You know, do you plan on saving for retirement? You know, how close are you to your family? How much involvement do you want in your life? Things like that. Um, But a lot of people just don't want to talk to their partner. (laughs) A lot of people are more interested in the idea of dating someone. And once they, as you've said, sort of check that off the list or like, I'm going to do the bare minimum necessary to maintain this. If I dig in too much, everything, the whole house of cards might collapse. And I think it's worth having some form of media that explores and normalizes the idea that constant communication, you know, checking in with your partner, how are you feeling today? You know, what do you want to do? What do you think about X, Y, and Z is really, really important. And all the benefits that can bring, whether or not it's like better emotional health, more support, you know, if you need to be treated in a certain way in order to be happy, you know, sharing your love languages and making sure they understand how to best like approach you in times of need. Um, You know, whether that's, you know, sexual health, you know, being open and honest about what you want to see in the bedroom. Um, And I I think that doesn't mean they need to respond and be like 100%. They can be critical if you're (laughs) asking for certain things they're not comfortable with, but, you know, having those conversations and, you know, earnestly, you know, admitting and exploring fetishes and whatnot. Um, But yeah, like this is a, a good example of a movie where it's not necessarily that communication is the problem. It's that people don't understand how to actually listen. And I think being able to explore the consequences of bad communication and the benefits of good communication would be very good for a culture that produces a lot of two-hour films where it's just scene after scene of people hanging out doing cute things. And that's supposed to be the end goal. And uh, an idea that I I think that maybe your movie would get across is it, it reminds me of a something one of our friends said after a relationship and I I won't pull their name out, but, and I also don't know if you were there. I think it might've just been us, but anyway, one of our mutual friends post the relationship uh, was like, we realized we were having fun because we were doing fun things, not because we were having fun (laughs) together. Um, And I think that's an important idea too. It gets rid of like the surface level of the relationship of like, yeah, if you're going skydiving with your partner all the time, like, yeah, you're going to have fun, but like, there's going to be times where you're not skydiving and you need to be able to enjoy being around them. Yeah. And I I think, again, a lot of people think of relationships as sort of this vacuum where things will never change, but you know, someone's going to lose their job inevitably. Someone's going to, you know, lose a parent or a sibling and you're going to have to comfort them. Someone's going to get horribly sick. Someone might be disabled. Someone might have to move across the country because their work changed location. And then you have to sort of grapple with whether or not you want to move with them or if this relationship's going to work out. Right. And if you're just 
in the relationship to have fun with somebody, I don't think that's nearly as strong as having like explored and gotten to the core of why you care about this person and their personality and ultimately identifying, you know, the things that make each other tick. Ultimately, I think we'll move through those problems far more easily than, you know, just someone who you're in it with for the laughs. RJ, let's quit our jobs and become screenwriters. Now we already already have a spec script where it's basically the movie Predator, but every single character is a different archetype of male abusers, and they all have to like work together to take down like an evil alien. Wow, what a <laughs> well, that's, what a sentence I wasn't prepared for. <laughs> uh, yeah, this uh, this whole podcast is actually just an opportunity for us to network with the big wigs and get in Hollywood. Yeah, um, I hope I hope it works out for you. I'm comfortable with my one media appearance a year. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm very happy you could join me and talk about a movie we both appreciated, uh, a movie that actually is relevant to the podcast, not Southland Tales or Donnie Darko or Cosmopolis. But maybe that'll be a Patreon exclusive as we explore <laughs> the dimensions of relationships as a billionaire played by Robert Pattinson goes throughout his day cheating on his wife multiple times and expecting I, her to put up with it. I would... You know, maybe not a full hour podcast, but I actually like another excuse to watch Cosmopolis and then do like a quick chat about the awful, awful relationship dynamics in that one. Um, you have your mother's breasts, <laughs> firm breasts, real stand up tits. <laughs> what, an, what an awful sentence that, <sighs> that dialogue was uh, in that. To be clear, that was... <laughs> A line delivered by Robert Pattinson in a feature film. You know, people didn't think Robert Pattinson was going to be good for the Batman, but I was a firm believer because I'd seen Cosmopolis where he paid a sociopathic billionaire and I'd seen The Lighthouse with You where he plays a guy going crazy, a crazy sociopathic billionaire. He had it down. He was, he was just building up. It was block by block. Yeah, yeah. All of his life has been preparing to be part of the DC Cinematic Universe. <laughs> A goal we all work so hard to strive for. Yes, indeed. RJ, anything else before we close out? No, I. it's always fun talking about 500 Days of Summer and how how it's fine. It's nice to finally create something with the 10 years that we've been talking about <laughs> 500 Days of Summer. Now for Sharknado. The critical Marxist analysis of Sharknado. <sighs> His name is Finn, just like the shark. He has to destroy himself. <laughs> the okay. Jesus figure. He is the Jesus figure. Uh, well, thank you again for showing up. Um, I don't know when this is going to be up. Probably in the next couple of weeks, I'll let you know. Um, but hopefully people listening to this are interested in watching this film. We would strongly encourage you to do so. I believe it is available on Netflix right now. It's not a reason to maintain Netflix, but if you already have a Netflix subscription, maybe check it out. And if you're listening to this on a Delta Airlines flight, I believe it is also on the in-flight catalog. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks so much, and you enjoy your days all. Never ever saw it coming at all. He never ever saw it coming at all. He never ever saw it coming at all. It's all right, 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 it's all right. Open wide, you close, original sin. You
We have many thanks for the use of our theme music, which is the song Drop by Ketza. You can find more of their music online at ketza.uk. You can also find Date These Guys online on Twitter and Instagram at DateTheseGuys or visit DateTheseGuys.org. If you have questions for the podcast or want to be a wealthy sugar parent, send an email to DateTheseGuys at gmail.com. If you're looking to make an impact in the world, this show strongly recommends Planned Parenthood, a nonprofit organization that provides reproductive health care in the United States. Planned Parenthood provides birth control, long-acting reversible contraceptive implants, clinical breast examinations, pregnancy screenings, prenatal care, testing and treatment for sexually transmitted infections, and abortions. They also do great work for those who are lower income. Four-fifths of their clients are at or below 50% of the federal poverty line. Both Joel and Naomi are monthly donors to Planned Parenthood. We hope you will be too.